Congress has gone into a two-week recess. However, the entirety of the debt ceiling debate took up a lot of time that could have been used to address other confirmations and hearings that need to get done. So that means it's going to be a busy summer once members return. To discuss what's on tap, we turn to Bloomberg government's Lauren Duggan. Well, I think if you look off the floor, you see the development of some of the key pieces of legislation that need to happen by both September 30th and the end of the year. One of the big debates, obviously, is always government funding. And we've seen a lot of action in both the House and Senate Appropriations Committees, which was allowed to move forward after the debt limit bill. But we see this divergence happening that we could you know, talk about some more. But the two chambers are heading kind of in different paths right now, which could be tricky as the year goes on. We've also seen a lot of action this week or last week on the defense authorization bill, which is another big measure that sets policy for the Pentagon. And then we're starting to see more discussion about things like the farm bill and the FAA. So lawmakers are really looking at these deadline driven things and saying, oh, we only have so much time left to to do these with breaks like the two week one that we're in right now um, and a lot to get done before the end of the year. Yeah, it seems like after the debt limit was finally put aside and now folks are finally getting back to business and they're like, oh, whoa, that really did take way too long. <laughs> yes, definitely. That that affected the schedule and they're trying to do a lot more in the compressed schedule they have. But there's still a lot of big questions hanging over the debt limit deal resolved one big matter, but left a lot of question marks for Congress to fill in. There are also a ton of nominees that are up for Senate confirmation. And with nominations, we always get the folks who are threatening to block those nominations. What are some of the top level ones that you have heard from that camp? Well, we've seen a lot of judicial nominees process this year, obviously, and that will continue as as they get them from the White House, have the hearings and push those through. Um, we also see a lot of deputy secretary level ones moving, including one for the agriculture department right when we get back from the break. But some of the big ones outstanding, there's still no labor secretary. Julie Sue's nomination feels like it's still in limbo. Um, we'll be waiting to see when they get back if there's going to be enough support to move that forward. The question marks there are around Democrats still, which is, you know, usually we talk about Republicans opposing. But um, in this case, it's been, does she have enough Democratic support to move forward? And then obviously military nominees have been blocked by Tommy Tuberville, who's unhappy about the pen Pentagon's policies around abortion and has held up most of the senior positions there. And there are some key ones that obviously need to be processed in the coming weeks. So that is a, a lot of floor activity that needs to happen on those. And you have to pepper in some of these legislative questions as well. But that's been one of the Senate's top jobs is confirming people that will continue. But there's going to be competing priorities as well when they come back. Speaking of Senate activity and House activity, you mentioned the divergence in spending measures. What can you tell me on where the Senate stands? and where the House stands, obviously two differing opinions on major spending bills. Well, there seems to be agreement on defense spending. If you remember back to the debt limit deal, they agreed on spending caps, defense, non-defense. The defense side is pretty agreed upon, but the non-defense side is where there's going to be some divergence. Um, for one thing, the allocations that the House and Senate committees have adopted diverge. The Senate stuck to the amount in the caps deal. The House is going lower, saying that was a ceiling, not a floor. Um, and then beyond that, the Senate is also talking about, do we need to do supplementals or find other ways to pump money into it? Um, and one thing they're going to do is try to rescind money from elsewhere and use that to kind of offset what's in the bill. So a lot to still happen there. And then beyond funding, there are the policy writers that come up here. Republicans are writing the bills in the House. Democrats are largely writing them in the Senate, though getting bipartisan support from their Republican colleagues. So that's the other clash that'll happen once you figure out how much to fund. What policy writers do you bring back? Which do you drop? Which new ones do you add? There's a lot going to happen there. And then on the authorization side as well, some of those same 
dynamics about policy writers are going to creep into that. Even if the top line spending is fairly similar, there's still a lot of details to work out in a bill like that. All right. And aside from the policy things, there were a lot of political developments that occurred uh, in Congress this week. Uh, what What is censoring and what does that mean for Adam Schiff? <laughs> well, a- Adam Schiff on round two, because they had tried the week before to do this, but they finally got enough Republicans to support the resolution censuring him. The immediate punishment was to come down to the floor of the House and basically be read the resolution by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But it also opened up an investigation that'll start to happen now into him. And we'll see if there's any follow up to that or further punishment. Um, We also saw last week a vote by the House to refer an impeachment resolution back to committees. So Homeland Security and Judiciary looking into Joe Biden and his border policies and whether those amount to high crime or misdemeanor. So that's still going to come. And then there are other impeachment resolutions out there that members want to pursue, whether it's FBI Director Ray or or other officials. Um, Joe Biden, obviously, one of them as well. So I think we could see more of this. Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, has been mentioned. So these are going to be in the background. There is some dispute among Republicans about whether this is the right way to go about it. Should they go through committee investigations? So we'll see that as well. And then there is still out there both the federal case against George Santos and then an ethics investigation into him as well. So a lot happening there on the investigative front, both on the floor, but mostly in committees that we may not see for a little bit. Yeah, the impeachment of cabinet secretaries is a, a thing that interests me because it's not one that you hear about a lot. Mostly they they try to just go for the top dog. <laughs> but um, what can you tell me? Uh, is that process any different or is it just basically the same thing? You just have to have the votes uh, lined up. You have to have the votes lined up. Um, you know, obviously, in this case, you need a simple majority in the House. If you can get all the Republicans on side and they say yes, that would create a trial over in the Senate. It's a little rarer to see, as you said, the cabinet secretaries, but not completely unprecedented. We've seen it for the president many times in recent years. And we've seen, you know, you can do the same thing to a federal judge, although that tends to be handled a little bit differently because usually those cases are cut and dry. And, you know, there's some pretty in your face wrongdoing there. Um, So we'll we'll see what's happening with those cases if they get to the floor for a vote. And then if there's a Senate trial, obviously, we'll have to watch that very closely as well. And that would also take away from Senate floor time to do other things, because those trials can be um, pretty laborious and time consuming as you go through whatever evidence the House presents. All right. And anything else to keep an eye on as we head into this recess on, you know, what folks are doing in their districts or anybody else going to be preparing for any other sort of hearings that are coming up? I mean, I think all these hearings are are going to fire back up once they're back in town. We know that James Comer has a lot of different investigations he'd like to do. Jim Jordan, who's both the Judiciary Chair and this Weaponization of Government Subcommittee Chair, has some topics there. We saw Ways and Means do some things around the Hunter Biden tax case and some whistleblowers, as they describe them, who were brought into a closed meeting. So the investigative wheels are going to turn. They're still going to bring cabinet officials in talking about lots of different issues. So it's going to be another busy hearing season in this July session as these bills also continue to move forward. All right. And a lot of uh, watching for you of Congress. (laughs) Absolutely. Keeps us busy. Yep. Lauren Duggan from Bloomberg Government. Thank you as always. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if 
I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.